Hi, I'm Jason Newlander, and I've created a new fictional podcast on the OneOfUs.net podcast network called Salt. If you're a fan of crime noir with a little sci-fi thrown in, then I think this just might be your thing. Jean-Pierre Desperrois is a Haitian-born salt smuggler living in 1931 Tunis and born during a voodoo ritual with the uncanny ability to travel through space and time. Think The Big Sleep meets 12 Years a Slave meets Doctor Who, and you've got the idea. 20 half-hour episodes tell the first season story, and I promise it's a doozy. Salt podcasts every other week on the oneofus.net podcast network. Subscribe today. Richard, I tell you, I really appreciate you doing this for Brian and I. Yeah, it's it's fine. Uh, Let me, it, it, you know, I, I realize that you're a busy guy, but, you know, the one of us dot net business offices really need somebody here to take care of. It. They need to monkey needs to get fed. You know, it, thank you. I mean, you got look, you guys just have a great time in San Diego at Comic-Con, you know, have a great time at the meetup with all the fans. I'm sure it'll be lovely. Me and Monkey will be here and, you know, we'll dusk the discs and, you know, I'll clean out the alligator pits and get the gerbils working properly. It'll be fine. And, uh, yeah, no, I mean, you just have a lovely, lovely, lovely time. Oh, yeah, and just, just you know, touch all the exclusives while you're there. It'll be great, you know. Well, I'm glad you understand. Yeah, completely. Now, over here are the archives. You're probably going to want to go all the way to the back, although I admit that you might want to, just for the hell of it, bring a walking counter for you. So that way you know how many calories you burned. It's a bit of a ways all the way back. So the the tram's not working is what you're saying? No, the tram's not working, but it's okay. The uh, Korean little girl ghost that haunts the back uh, stacks is in a good mood this weekend, so you should be fine. Anyway, uh, let's see. Uh, Over here, we've got the relaxation area. There you've got the the pool tables and the video Why did you say not to be touched by Richard? That's a different Richard. It actually uh. it was a misunderstanding. It was supposed to say that dick. Uh, what? Yeah, it was a different, it's a guy, everyone uh. else. I think they must have misunderstood. Anyway, and, uh, you know, I understand you're upset, Richard. This is a lot of work, but uh, over here is the keg room. Ooh, beer! Digital Noise. I am Chris Cox. I'm not. I'm Richard. <laughs> and we are going to talk about a ton of movies tons today. Tons and tons. We have lots of great stuff, lots of mediocre stuff, a few bad things. Yeah. <laughs> and we're going to lay it on all, all on you along with a really kick-ass giveaway that you're going to be excited about. Uh, but first, before we do that, let me tell you, coming up very shortly on July 26th, if you're going to be in San Diego, California. Which during, I'm not. Which you're not. <laughs> Swine. <laughs> During uh, San Diego Comic-Con, we have rented out the VIP room. Who knew that the Hard Rock Cafe had a VIP room? But there you go. The Hard Rock Cafe VIP room. This is at 801 4th Avenue in the Gaslamp District. There's zero cover charge. It's from 6 p.m. to 8 p.m. on Saturday, July 26th, where one of us.net is going to be having our Comic-Con meetup. It's going to be fun. There's a lot of people. You see a lot of familiar faces. And uh, there'll be maybe even a few surprise guests I'm working on. Ooh. We're going to have some prizes. It's going to be really, really, really cool. If you can't make it by 8 o'clock, keep a close eye on our One of Us Net Twitter 
And we will be posting about where we're going after that because we will be, in fact, pub crawling, which indeed, after two hours at uh, at one bar, we may be crawling at that <laughs> point. Uh, it could happen uh, as well. Thank you so much, you guys out there who have become subscribers. I cannot tell you how much we appreciate it. We are going to have a lot, mo- lot more perks coming for you as soon as we're back from San Diego. Really, it's just been a crazy freaking month with a lot in- a new and just for for subscribers commentaries even on the way. Lots of fun stuff. Would really would help us out if you become a subscriber now. Can't tell you how much you are the ones who keep the lights on here at oneofus.net. One last thing before we get started, and that is if you see all these links on the page on oneofus.net with pictures of the movies we've talked about today, if you click on those links, they will take you directly to an Amazon.com page that if you buy that movie from that link or the digital version of that movie or what have you, then we get a kickback from it. So it actually helps us out if you go through our links. But that's not all. If you, in fact, click on one of those links and change, you decide, you know what? I don't want that movie. I want a Stripperella action figure. Who wouldn't? Well, Stan Lee clearly does. Oh. Uh, then, or whatever it may be. As long as you started from our link and are surfing Amazon from there, whatever you buy, we get a kickback from. Hooray. Hooray! Pirates of the Digital Seas. Uh, anyway, thanks so much. And you know what? It is time for us to... Go out to the front yard in our boxer shorts and hope all the neighbors are still uh, are out to work while we open up the the letter box. You've got mail. That's right, the letter box. Thank you, Torgo. And we have a bunch of questions today uh, that I forgot to make big enough for me to read. So let me just do that <laughs> real quick. Old man calls. <laughs> yeah, that's. Pretty true. All right. So uh, first off, from Cody Leach, he says, Why are there so many trailers nowadays that give away the entire movie? Don't directors or producers get to see them and get a say in whether or not they are released? Well, um, from what I hear, it is a completely different company that does trailers for yep. films. Uh, they, It's not in-house at all. Uh, and I think that more than not, the creators of the film are less concerned about whether or not there are spoilers and more concerned about whether or not the trailer teases your general audiences and getting butts in seats. I I am a firm believer that uh, nothing should be included from the third act of any film. Agreed. I I think you you should hit the one hour mark and after that point, screw you, nothing at all. If your film can't visually and narratively strong enough to get a trailer together to work... I, you know, at that point, then you probably should find another career. That would be an excellent role. Yeah. I, I no really, third act footage. It really bugs me. The number of times I'm going, oh, I'm in the last 20 minutes of the film, and that shot from the trailer has got to be coming up because I haven't seen it yet. Unless you're talking about Amazing Spider-Man, where there was stuff in the trailer, they went, nope, nope, not happening. Yeah, not happening. That's coming more and more common with stuff in the trailer that's not in the movie. Ah, uh, drives me insane. <laughs> oh, my God. Uh, no, I... <laughs> And it, but the funny thing is, though, if you go back and watch trailers for a lot of films that have, a lot of older films that have been put out now, I was going to say that you suddenly realise how terrible trailers were twenty years ago. Well, that's god the, awful. That's the thing is that, like, especially you watch stuff from the sixties and the seventies, the trailers, they, they did not give a fuck about what was spoiled. You think you're upset now about stuff like giving away the whole movie? Trust me, they are circumspect as hell compared to the way it used to be. Go watch, pull out your old DVDs or your dad's collection or what have you, and look at it. Make a point of watching those trailers. They will show you every plot point in the movie from beginning to end. Or go watch, uh, you know, pull out your Star Wars box set and look at the original Star Wars and Empire Strikes Back trailers. They are 
awful. They're just, they just—they look like they were edited by a blind woodsman. And like Return of the Jedi, I think like 81, 82, people started putting really smart trailers together. But prior to that, really only the, the only good trailer I can think of is probably the original Alien trailer, which is phenomenal and so good that Ridley Scott ripped it off <laughs> for Prometheus. Not as good a film. Uh, no, I think it's just a really... its By that point, it's out of the control of the filmmaker. They're just you know, desperately hoping people go and see their film. You know, so much of it is out of their control by that point. And yeah, it does. It, it pisses me off badly because I'm like, oh, fuck you. Maybe, I mean, you can get away with something like, oh, Optimus Prime riding Grimlock while carrying a big sword. Because that's just fucking cool. And frankly, you're watching a film which is just, you know, visual highlights anyway. Yeah, I mean, so there, the is there such a, a thing as spoilers for a Transformer film? <laughs> uh, it's very existent spoiled things for me. Yeah. But no, I, yeah, I think you're completely right. Spoiler trailers just need to be stopped right now because they they don't encourage people to go, and I don't think they do the films any good. Yeah, I, I think that in, in retrospect they make people appreciate it less. God, I just was uh, reading somebody's whole take on this on the you know the fact that there's a whole movement of people who are acting like they should be a like no one should be able to give them shit for spoiling things whenever they feel like it. Yeah, like as if there's some sort of social socio political group who are being <laughs> who have an anti defamation league. It's like no, I'm sorry. Have you ever in your life heard a joke that was funnier when someone told you the punchline first? Yeah. End of story. End of story! I'm sorry. But at the same time, there comes a point where you can't <laughs> complain anymore. I mean, there's people I know who just started watching Game of Thrones and are going, oh, don't tell me about it. It's like, well, what bucket do you want to walk around with your head in to avoid any kind of conversation? So that, like, it is a balance act. I think oh, we're still going through is. that. But, of course. But a trailer for a thing which isn't out yet yes, is inexcusable. Absolutely. Yeah. Although I will say, I think that there's maybe one or two trailers a year that are so great that I... I go okay that was it that was the one the last one i saw that really i was like i gotta admit that was art in trailer making was the wolf of wall street yeah which had one of those trailers that just made you sit up straight in your seat and go i gotta fucking see this yeah. <laughs> so much fun um it can be done it just nobody really bothers it's like the art of trailer making has gone the way of the art of theatrical posters yeah it's just no thought real thoughts being put into it it's just a photoshop job i'm also going to say two minutes Cap your trailers out at two minutes. I three, see three minutes 30 when I bring you up on YouTube. I ain't watching to the end. <laughs> Particularly if I've got to watch another trailer for a less interesting film before I watch the trailer for your film. Ah, Indeed. Okay, now uh, I've got to read this because we just don't understand. John Chalvin, I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing your name right, sorry, John, uh, asks us, and prepare for this one. Direct quote. Direct quote. How do they make you face goes big on the wall, and when the popcorn in the coming truck and the butter and the same truck, and why and how and how. You know what? I think he ripped this off from Robert Frost, actually. I say pencils. Fish. Pencils and fish. <laughs> There's your answer, John. Thank you very much. I uh, Yes. Okay. Zach Chapman asks, when you were growing up, did your teachers ever play any movies in class? What were some of your favorites, educational or not? I was always stuck watching Stand and Deliver. Man, I don't, these kids today, I, they never would have let, when we were growing up in school, a teacher just put on a regular movie yeah. just to kill time. Never! Like, at worst, in our homeroom, they put on the news sometimes, you know? But really? Just play a movie? What the fuck? Whereas uh, I set up a film club at my school. Did you? We, we actually set up a lunchtime film club. And uh, we showed Blade Runner. Uh, the way we did it was that a friend of ours, uh, actually, uh, his dad owned a video store. 
yes, video store, VHS, screw you, modernity. <laughs> um, and uh, we put films on and we like show them over a two week period. We show the first half one, one lunchtime and the second half the week later because we could always get the take because his dad owned the store. Sure. So yeah, we, we, we just used to, uh, we actually set up our own film club and we show science fiction stuff. It was great. That is cool. But so you think presumably only... like 20 minutes at a time then if it was during lunch. No, 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 because we had a nice big long lunch break because it's in the UK. So uh, people would run and get their, uh, stuff their lunch down their throats as, as fast as humanly possible um, because lunchtime would, at my school would start at 12.35 and finish at 1.55. Um, still not enough time for an entire film. Not though. enough time for an entire film, but you can do you could do a two-hour film over two weeks. Sure, sure. Because people would go just cram their food down, and we would get that tape in the machine by you know five to one at the latest, and then everybody would like burn out. Nobody ever saw credits. We never. Saw- <laughs> <laughs> I think there's still a couple of people who never who, who because they had to get to the other end of the, of the school. They uh, didn't see the last five minutes of Blade Runner. Um, uh, hmm. To this day, they probably curse my name. But yeah, we you know we, we actually had our own our own film. Club. It has been made available in a few formats since. I, I hear I hear there may be like the odd uh, different edit of it or something like is it, like they may have brushed up the the print or something. I, feel, I don't know. I feel like there's a version of it where like you know the camera pans out of the the room we all are sitting watching it and goes across to the lunchroom with a sad looking lunch lady who just stares into the camera and says i've seen things you wouldn't believe <laughs> cockroaches crawling out of the mashed potato vat <laughs> pepperoni that moved on its own accord <laughs> things you school kids wouldn't believe all these things will be lost in time like my snot in the applesauce Moving on. Ew. Ew. I, don't, I don't miss school. I don't. They don't miss you, seemingly, either. <laughs> no, I no. don't. They do. I haven't gotten many, I'm so glad to see you're doing well, messages from old teachers. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, you know what? It's time to close the letterbox and get into the reviews. And we're going to start this one off right. We're going to toke one up and uh, you know get ourselves in the mood for things. By smoking a full bowl of kid cannabis. Mm. Now, this is a based on a true story, although I'm not entirely sure how true. I'm a little suspicious because the bonus features in no way actually anything pretty to do. accurate. Is it? It's okay. actually surprisingly, surprisingly spot on the money. Apparently, this just came out in 2014, but apparently, this this little fat kid in Idaho decided who was like basically just smoke pot all day long was like, you know, this is untenable. I, I got to find a way to like to have my pot and everything paid for and meet girls and stuff. So he finds a way to go across uh, into Canada, meets a, you know, a cool kind of hippie-ish type guy on the other side and uh, arranges a a cross-country pot dealing business and becomes like this huge pot czar for yeah. a few years. <laughs> uh, and apparently this didn't last long, his his like career as a major pot dealer. Only a few years at best. But he basically got all the all these other high school kids to be his like mules who would like wear heavy camouflage, furry military looking suits and run through the woods from Canada to America transporting pot. And it's actually a lot of fun. This this version of this, I was I was really surprised by how much I liked this because I saw the trailer and I I like I I have a very limited patience on uh, stoner movies. They tend to burn my they burn yeah. me quite badly. It's, it's not um, a and it's not one of those films not. where it's just like a oh let's watch these guys do funny stoner stuff. It's not really one of those movies. This is this is a a basically a gangster movie about this this nineteen year old kid who you know kind of quite. 
affably gets involved with some extremely dangerous people, including the guy who was the top local dealer, who is basically a 20-year-old complete prick, who uh, was making money and using it to get blown by local party girls. And that was pretty much it. They're they're kind of low-grade and scummy. There is one genuinely scary figure in this, uh, which is Ron Perlman as the guy who put the money up. Which is funny because, like, like... They set him up in this – well, right from the beginning, they tell you – I mean, it's very, it's narrated by the lead character, uh, Nate Norman, who uh, – played by Jonathan – newcomer Jonathan Daniel Brown, who just tells you right off the bat. It's like, oh, yeah, he was a big, scary, multi-level drug dealer and businessman, and he's a great guy. Never did me wrong. Yeah. Totally liked him the whole time. We stayed friends. It was like, what? That's a weird thing to start with. And yet, through the whole movie, you still keep waiting for that other shoe to drop. Yeah. And Perlman's performance is so measured – you know, you never really know what to believe. Yeah. Well, I mean, you got the, I mean, his whole thing is, I'm a businessman. My business happens to be highly illegal, and I'm not prepared to go to jail for you. Right. If you fuck up, if you try and sell me down the river, I will have you killed. But if you keep doing the thing which makes me money, which is all I care about, then we're fine. Yeah. And he has, and there is this kind of honor amongst thieves thing. And it's like, and this warning that's built in at the beginning of, you know, at some point, somebody is going to drop a dime on them. Somebody's going to do something stupid. And, you know, of course, this happens. This is kind of a, you know, rather than being a stoner movie, this is kind of a a pot-smuggling wolf of Wall Street in a lot of ways. It's a narration of a guy who goes, oh, I got myself into a situation, and I'm kind of apologetic about it, but really, who did I hurt? But this guy probably has a bigger case with, like, who did I hurt? Not many people. Um it does feature a fantastic cameo by one of my favorite actors. John I C. Don't McGinley? Think, oh, nobody does crazy eyes like John C. McGinley. Yeah. Um, as this Canadian pot grower. Um, and those scenes were actually shot in a genuine uh, Canadian pot. Oh, no kidding. They, yeah, they actually, a, lot, a lot of this actually shot on location. And the crew was found some guy who was growing his own in the middle of nowhere and were taken out blindfolded. Uh. But McGinley plays this kind of like... Really, very serious guy who, as he gets higher and higher and higher, gets more and more intense about how serious the business is and how you've got to be respectful of each other. And it's kind of, <laughs> he's amazing. And I could have done with 20 minutes more of John C. McGinley. I could do with 20 minutes more of John C. McGinley. And and all films anything. should just have John, John C. McGinley. Just at, at least for five minutes. The only thing I regretted about this film uh, was that McGinley and Perlman didn't have a scene together because you've got two guys who, like, the camera gets them and they just stops. It just locks on them because they're so charismatic in this kind of weird, unconventional, big-chinned way. I would have loved to have seen a scene you know, with uh, those two. In. What's the name of the guy who plays Q on Star Trek? Oh, uh, John Delancey. John Delancey. I always thought he and John C. McGinley would make great brothers in mm. something, you know? <laughs> like antagonistic brothers. They'd yeah. be perfect at it. Maybe I, they already have. I don't even know. <laughs> but I was really surprised by it. By, you know, I went in not expecting a lot from this. It's kind of it's low budget. Uh, but it's, it's pretty, pretty interesting in places. And I, I was yeah. really drawn to go through the end. You kind of get this feeling of like, it's very easy for, you know, people to get a little bit of money and become complete morons. <laughs> True. And you've got this kind of tubby, schlubby, uh, 20 year old who kind of tries to pass himself off as like a real gangster at points. And it's kind of hilarious, but then you go, well, hang on. If he ever follows through on any of this, which isn't that hard and he has the money to get it done. He really could become quite scary, and there's a little edge to this that I was kind of surprised it was it was prepared to go there. Well, it's 
I think this movie really tried hard to, as you say, stick, become more, feel more realistic, stick to the facts. And I'm not sure if that helped it or hurt it, because I think ultimately you've got a film that's enjoyable, but isn't going to go any further than it did, no. really. It's never going to become a super memorable movie. It is no Wolf of Wall Street. No. Uh, and there's lots of stuff in here that felt like the actors wanted to push it farther, you know, especially I think his name is Aaron Yu, who was playing the sort of Asian guy who they're basically taking over his drug business, who's totally batshit insane. And he, if anyone, is the one, you know, character acting it up the most. Oh, Just, scenery is chewed. Yeah, but like it... It felt like they had to keep pulling him back yeah. uh, during it. And I, I wonder about the version of this film where they said, let let us go the Wolf of Wall Street direction and just play it up more as a crazy comedy. You know, not a stoner comedy per se, but like just exaggerate it more, give it more of an edge. Because by the end, I was like, you know, I enjoyed that, but it still was something I'm probably not going to remember a year from now. The direction's a little bit flat and the yeah. cinematography isn't isn't spectacular. I think the performances and the, the script are the best things about this. Agreed. And it's an interesting story just in and of itself that this just happened. Uh, he's been caught and put in prison for 12 years, but was released early and now is living under uh, home confinement in his hometown where he was the poor guy with a bunch of rich people. But there's a thing at the end that shows like a little, you know, the little uh, animal house-ish. Yeah. Here's what happened to each person but you know for real yeah uh and I, i'm really surprised like the fact that all these people are available and there's nothing on here with interviews with any real people that is the disappointment like that. that is the one that is the disappointing thing about this release is, is you kind of like this and I, I went and did some research online and it's like yeah no this stuff actually happened and a lot of this is is very is based on on the real case and and it is true he never squealed he was like i'm a businessman yeah you're like you just ended up. This kid who just ended up in the wrong, wrong business because he didn't have any options. You kind of, and it, it doesn't make too loud a case for legalization. It's kind of inherent in its story. Yeah. yeah. Um, and I've always been of the feeling that I'm I'm pro legalization purely from the basis it'll shut stoners the fuck up about it. <laughs> uh, I think that, <laughs> the, and it kind, but it does that. It it's basically just there's one moment where it's pretty explicit where his mom just goes, but it's just some pot. Yeah, it's just pot, and that's the thing is like. There's still, I mean, more so than ever right now, there's this massive campaign to to smear pot as being like, oh, no, everything you've heard about it being harmless is wrong. Mm -hmm. And it's like, bullshit. You guys are pulling out some serious bullshit out of your ass with this stuff. Did you see the one that was going around like yesterday when it was making the rounds that was saying marijuana abuse can lead to all these things? It's like, yeah, or the key words there are abuse. And can. can. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, uh, the woman playing the uh, the mom, I'm trying to remember her name right now. She's like Amanda Tapping. She's like this staple of sci-fi television. I, I didn't realize it was her. I know, right? Huh. She was in Stargate. She was. She was on, uh, God, I can't remember the name, this Canadian show, The Sanctuary, that was yeah. on for a while. Like one of those, she, any given sci-fi show, she's probably going to appear at some point. She's probably going, hello. Hello. Sometimes she'll, sometimes she'll have an English accent, sometimes not. I'm not even sure if she's English or not. I think she's Canadian. Is she? I'm yeah, well, a lot of those shows are Canadian. Anyway, let's move on to our next film, which is, I know, going to be one of Richard's favorites. We got a lot of good stuff this week. It's, this has been a really, really solid week. But let, let's let uh, take a look under the clothes. I mean, under the skin. <sighs> and this is why we can't take you anywhere. <laughs> Oh, come on. You can't tell me that part of the reason you showed up at 10 a.m. to watch this at the Violet Crown Theater in Austin is because you heard Scarlett Johansson takes all her clothes off repeatedly. Naked. Naked Johansson. I know that's why I was there. Uh, 
I this is this is a a um, British science fiction film that comes uh, with. Go and listen to our rave review from when this first came out because yes. this is this uh, directed by Jonathan Glazer who made uh, he's made two other films. Sexy Beast, Yay! phenomenal British gangster movie. So good. Which if you haven't seen that, you really need to. So good. And Birth, which I think pretty much killed his career for, yeah, <laughs> for I've a heard, decade. I've never even heard of it. It is laughably bad. Oh, it is. Wow. It, it is a. It, and in a way, these these two films are very similar because they're both kind of high concept, gritty uh, genre films. Uh, with a redhead in the lead. Uh, Birth was about Nicole Kidman, who became convinced that this annoying child who lived next door was her um, her husband reincarnated. Um, she had a terrible creepy. haircut. That's, um, it, just one of the worst films I've ever seen. I laughed because it was so bad. This I mean, chances is, are is creepy enough with Robert Downey Jr. trying uh, to have sex with an older Sybil Shepherd, but still, still Sybil Shepherd. Um, but this is um, Scarlett Johansson is. It's never established whether she's an alien or an alien probe or a tool of the aliens. Well, she's alien in some way. Yes. Yes. Who is made to look like a woman and then is sent to Glasgow to pick up men, take them back to this, this derelict house, and then feed them into this machine, which basically renders them down into slush. Yes. As she goes on, she starts to develop this sense of, of self. Of not just being this thing, which is a predator there to take these things, take these meat bags in, and and feed them into into the process. It is phenomenal. Uh, you know, Glazer has it's got this kind of dark, somber, hypnotic tone. Um, he the sound mix is really fascinating because he oh, deliberately yeah. picked. Um, Glaswegians with the thickest possible Glaswegian accent. So they sound like they're speaking an alien tongue, whereas Scarlett Johansson nails her English accent. Yes. Um, so she feels most identifiable, but you know she's not human. You know that you're looking at something which is wrong and weird. This is basically Invasion of the Body Snatchers from the pod people's point of view. Yeah, and definitely, like, whereas Invasion of the Body Snatchers is more accessible, like, um, you know... Clark Crab Pleaser. This is, like you said, I mean, it's it's an alien point of view for the whole thing, and therefore, like, the art film nature of it really suits it. I mean, it's indecipherable at points, what's happening, but not in a way that will make you frustrated, yeah. in a way that makes you kind of scared. You know, the moments in here that you don't understand what's happening are are actually frightening. And a lot of that has to do with the soundtrack and the cinematography that are doing almost 2001-ish type stuff. You know, like, wow, this is really, you know, kind of brave and it's it's old and new at the same time. I'd say less 2001, more more Tarkovsky, stuff like Solaris. Oh, right, But it's, uh, uh, or, you know, if you liked... um, Beyond the Black Rainbow, which came out a couple of years I ago. I actually did not. But oh, I, I love that film. But, like it, but I, you know, it has that same kind of sense of, you know, unearthly, doesn't feel the need to explain itself. There's no moment where you get a big info bomb revealing what this is about. But you this are- is about a, a predator who is coming to terms with the fact that, that it, it imitates its prey. So what does that mean for what it is? Does it come a certain point where it is it what it's eating? And well, it's yeah, like it's- really... It, it's, you know, I mean, we see in the beginning, it literally has killed Scarlett Johansson, whoever she was in real life, uh, you know, that uh, the actress, the role, and has taken her its skin <laughs> and is wearing it. Yeah. And we don't know, at least until near the end, 
what's underneath this skin, under the skin, as it were. And that's the thing as we go along, you know, she's very cold and mechanical almost at first. She's learning as she goes, but it's kind of about that point where she becomes too much, as you say, like what she eats, if you will, uh, gaining even becoming confused and not knowing what to do when she encounters what empathy is. Yeah. You know, <laughs> in, a, in a one of the most powerful sequences in cinema this year, uh, uh, I won't, we won't spoil that for you, but there is an amazing moment where of physical bravery by the cast and by one particular cast member that is really just sticks with me to this day. It is, it, this is a haunting film, and it's it's final proof that Scarlett Johansson is doing. You know, is is that old joke? You know, you do the studio film and then that buys you the ability to go off and do the stuff you want to do. Right. And I think it's funny that her and her Avengers co-star, Chris Evans, that's exactly what they're doing. They're doing the big budget stuff and then they're going, I still have the leeway to get things like this and things like Snowpiercer to sign off, to, to bring my weight to them and my name recognition. Agreed. I mean, she's obviously having a really good, like, six months or so yeah. <laughs> between her and this I'm going well you've got some really good taste when, when you've got yourself in a position that you can just do what you want to do I mean shit count Captain America the Winter Soldier into this you can just go god damn Scarlett Johansson's just knocking it out of the park lately yeah I, I'm almost <laughs> I'm almost interested to see what will inevitably be the highly dumb Lucy um, well, you know, the thing is, I thought the trailer looks like it could be a lot of fun, and then it goes, a film by Luc Besson, and you go, oh, if only this was 15 years ago. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I mean, every once in a while, Luc Besson still does something that I have a fun time with, but generally speaking, it's like he doesn't have someone whose job it is to say, look, that doesn't make any sense. Yeah. That's just stupid. <laughs> he should just make uh, transporter movies. That's all. I, I mean, he doesn't that. even make them. He just produces them, you yeah. know? It's yeah. Like, uh, yeah, anytime something says produced by Luc Besson, I immediately go, well, you've just gotten down to the 10% chance of being good. Yeah. <laughs> uh, this comes with just 10 brief featurettes, uh, you know, just a look through the camera casting, editing, locations, music, etc., etc. So it's not an uh, extensive amount of stuff on here, unfortunately, for a film that is so interesting, it really deserves more people talking about it. I mean, this is really the, uh, yeah, what was the one uh, uh, about Disney World? Oh, uh, Escape from Tomorrow. Escape from Tomorrow. This is like the the next art film like that that makes me just, that doesn't tell you everything and you just want to know more about it. I sense there is going to be a phenomenal Criterion edition of this in 10 years' time. Yeah, I wouldn't be surprised. Anyway, good, good, good stuff. And uh, on a, a different week, this might have been my pick of the week. I don't know if it's yours or not. Well, let's see what you go with. All right. <laughs> I'll show you mine when you show me yours. Oh. I'm not playing doctor with you. Ew. Because I, you know, I play a doctor on TV, but not for real. Yeah, talk to Drake Ramore. You know, I always thought the joke was funny and no one else did but me. It says, I'm not an actor, but I play one on television. <laughs> I like it. Okay, see, I always say that and everyone looks at me like I'm crazy. I'm like, oh, that's funny. That's hilarious. I don't know. Ah, sticking with science fiction, let's talk about Orphan Black Season 2. Now, Orphan Black is one of those shows that really surprised the hell out of me that everyone started paying attention to it so instantly. And I really genuinely like this show. And I think the selling point for a lot of people is lead star Tatiana Maslany, who plays like seven or so of the roles on the TV <laughs> show. I don't even know, like a lot of the roles of the TV show. Cause the idea is, is that she's this woman named Sarah 
who is on the subway one day and sees, sees this woman in a full business suit who looks exactly like her, take off all her shoes, put her purse neatly aside, then jump in the front in front of a train. And like, what the fuck is that? And she's like, just baffled that, like, well, A, she just watched a person kill herself, but B, she was, you know, identical to her. So goes and looks through her stuff, figures, finds out she was a policewoman, doesn't know why she killed herself, but Sarah is kind of a juvenile delinquent and has a lot of people looking for her. So she's like, well, I'm just going to assume this woman's identity for a while and hide (laughs) out, only to discover she's just entered the tip of the iceberg of a whole series of clones of her that exist out there. And the big corporation that created them in the first place that wants something. And it's still not entirely clear, even by the end of the second season, exactly what it is this big corporation wants. But now at least we are getting more and more of a picture of the hierarchy of who's in this company, uh, what they may want on a more personal level. I mean, we discover that the person at least running the initial corporation, because there's like, you know, as there are, there's the company that's doing this. And then there's a whole series of companies on top of them that we know nothing about yet, <laughs> you know, that own them. But the one who kind of runs the, the immediate company is another clone, ah. but one that was raised inside of the company and is the cold ice queen bitch that doesn't give a shit about anybody. Um, but Orphan Black, what makes this so fun is really, I guess, all these performances by Tatiana Maslany because they're all so different personalities and they do great stuff with effects where they interact and are in the room all at the same time. But it's still a surprise because I think without that gimmick, I'm not sure if this is something people would have like grabbed onto as tightly yeah. immediately, but it is impressive. And, you know, Maslani is, I, I don't think she got nominated for, for an Emmy this year, but that's if she, because stupid. Be, yeah. I was going to say, if she didn't, it's, it's because of stupid because yeah. she goddamn well deserved it. Incredible performances. Season two, uh, is, I don't feel like I was quite as into it as I was season one, if for no other reason the gee whiz factor is gone now. Yeah. Uh, and there's also kind of what I thought was a misstep with a character that comes in that is another clone, but who had a sex change just so that she can play a man. And it's awkward and uncomfortable and unconvincing. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, even to the point of her regularly grabbing the bulge in her boxers just to point out, look, I got a dick. You know, like, okay, we got it. You're making me feel icky. (laughs) I know. I don't want to be. I'm not that guy. I swear. But, like, we know it's not. It's just like they put a sock in there. And it's like, it just feels awkward and weird in the context of the show. Yeah, I don't know about you, but I don't grab myself randomly in public for no good reason. Well, I scratch myself sometimes. That's a whole different thing. Yes. Yes. (laughs) That's a thing. When when you're out front... Watering the lawn. Yeah. Well, you know. As you do. Your, bo- your boys, you know, need a little attention there for a second. You've got to get in on Occasionally that. Occasionally, they do need relocating. Uh, this gets a lot more into the religious cult that is really into the the crazy one. There's one of these that's like this Russian, one of the clones is this Russian crazy chick that, like, it was a killer, and then they kind of, they, they thought they killed her, but then they didn't, but then she forgave them. It's very complicated. Yeah. <laughs> But she's back and is dealing with this cult that wants to harvest her eggs and mix them with the sperm of the cult leader. And it's a very odd part, probably the most uncomfortable part of all this that I still felt like was kind of a misstep. Like, why is this even in here? I don't give a shit about this cult. I I care about what's going on with the, the Dyad Institute, the people who are doing this. And what do they really want? As well as we discover there's a whole nother set of clones out there as well, which is a really interesting thing that comes. I don't want to say too much about that 
But yes, she's not the only person who got cloned Aha. multiple again and again. And it looks like there's going to be no end to the possibility of continuing to introduce new versions of the character. Uh, I, I really did ultimately enjoy the hell out of this season. I, uh, the, the actor who plays Felix, who's her, you know, stepbrother, if you will, ha- like, they're not related, but they were brought up together in foster care. He, there, he's gotten some criticism for playing his character too gay. And it's like, I've been friends with a lot of gay guys and some gays are gays. Some guys who are gay are more flamboyant. He's not ridiculously flamboyant, but he is visibly and wants to be seen as gay. That does not, there's nothing wrong with that. A little baffled why people want to jump immediately and go, no, you can't have a gay guy who's actually like gay on TV because that would be some of of Alan Cummings early TV comedy performances. Exactly. Uh, <laughs> in fact, go see a series called The High Life, in which he played a, an air steward, uh, and and you know, and then get high, back to us. high camp was was definitely the order of the day. Uh, but he's really good on this show, um, and apparently not British, which stunned everyone uh, who was British who was working on the show because they'd only met, talked to him like. In character, and then when it was over, they're like, "Wait, you're not British?" What? Apparently, a bunch of critics and everything were like, "That is the most realistic British performance I've ever seen by someone who's not British ever." Oh. Never would have guessed in a billion years that was not a real accent. I will be fascinated to catch that then. Indeed. Well, you should be watching *Orphan Black* if you haven't yet. It is terrific. Like I said, this is a solid second season. Uh, I love that the BBC puts out these sets like almost immediately. Like, sometimes their sets come out on Blu-ray before the series has even finished airing. <laughs> it's not the first time. It, it's happened quite a few times, in fact. I think it's, a, I mean, it's a miscalculation because it's BBC America, but maybe it's airing earlier in England. I don't really know. Or Canada. Or Canada. Yeah. I don't know. Well, that's the thing, because a, a lot of American releases are also uh, the Canadian releases as well. True. So America's yeah. hat. <laughs> uh, st- or you are Canada's diaper. <laughs> if you will. One of the two. Uh, I don't think that counts. I mean, maybe someday in an apocalyptic future, but for now, they're America's hat. What about the apocalyptic now? No. Uh, no. Uh. We're not really taking any of their cast-offs, per se. Ooh, Ted Cruz. Sorry? Ted Cruz. Tech Cruz? Ted Cruz. Ted Cruz. Yeah. Oh, he's one of their cast-offs? He's Canadian. That's... is... Startling, actually, <laughs> considering his immigration platform. There we go. Uh, anyway, let's move on to some more sci-fi and talk about a just a classic in science fiction and horror that there should be absolutely no question about, and that is David Cronenberg's Scanners. Uh, 1980, yeah, this movie will blow your mind. Hey! Uh, 1981, very early in Cronenberg's career, but arguably the first big, solid hit yeah. that he had. I mean, he certainly did other films for this that are very good, but this is the first one that was like, okay, made it across the country to multiple theaters and was talked about by everyone, and now you... You know, if you put in, type on the internet, head exploding, the probably the first images that'll pop up will be from this movie. Yep. <laughs> um, and this is the Criterion edition of it with a gorgeous cover, by the way. Just so cool. Like, God, I love it when Criterion puts out cult stuff like this. I'm like, oh, thank you for acknowledging that there's horror can be as high art as anything else. Um, if you've never seen Scanners... Well, you lose. Yeah, yeah, you're just wrong. But scanners means they're they're telepaths. They can quote scan other people, uh, including controlling other people's bodies, hear their thoughts, uh, 
you know, control specific functions and, as it turns out, make people's heads explode with, with your brain. Yep. Uh, one of the most memorable openings of any film ever with a Mike, Michael Ironside. Poor Michael Ironside. Who I really wish was a big star now. Instead, he's relegated to tiny little films and, and so wrong. I mean, the highest thing, best thing he gets to do is voices for superheroes usually yeah. these days on animated stuff. But, um, it involves like some, a new guy that's getting his abilities and, and he's brought into the company and he doesn't know who to trust. I don't, I don't even want to say too much about this. Uh, um, uh, what's his name from the prisoner? Uh, Patrick, Patrick McGowan is a scientist who's investigating all this and trying to, control the situation, which is impossible to do when you're dealing with telepaths. Yep. Uh, there's a drug that, uh, that they, the company Consec uses to suppress their telepathic powers, but apparently there's also ways to use it in other ways as well. It's a very complicated plot that moves very quickly, and you're not going to have any trouble understanding, ultimately, as it I goes. I mean, it's, it's basically a psychic spy drama. Yes, where everybody, It's more a psychic assassin drama. Yes. You know, I, um, Ironside is phenomenal. I mean, if, if, if there's one issue that this film has, and it's really a tiny one, it is that the villain is the most charismatic and interesting thing about it. Very true. He is phenomenal. So much more so than the the protagonist, who is really his kind name of, being nobody can remember. Kind of bland. Yeah. Uh, Louis Louis de, Del Grand. Yeah, I guess. <laughs> no, yeah. that's not his name. I'm sorry. That's somebody. It's somebody else. Uh, I don't even know what his name is. So there you go. Yeah, uh, I mean, Stephen Lack. I think this is. Uh, you know, it's still early Cronenberg. It's before he became, you know, as visually startling as he is on, on later movies like Existence. Uh, this is really him kind of getting beyond just the gross out of his early stuff into, you know, just a really whip smart script and great performances. And knowing that he can, you know, I think having a little bit more confidence as a director, I think this is really his first masterpiece. And, you know, I would go so far as to say The Brood was, which was right I love The this. Brood. I don't think it's a masterpiece. I still think he's kind of like, I'm going to I'm gonna be edgy. I'm going to be edgy. Whereas this, he just goes, you know what? I can get away with it. I can really pull this stuff off. It, the Brood is super bright, super smart. A uh, great piece of horror if you've never seen it. But, uh, you know, if you were going to ask me what Cronenberg deserves a Criterion edition the early Cronenberg, right. you have to go to Scanners. So I think this is the right choice. Uh, and this isn't even quite at his peak yet, which started with Videodrome, which I think is still his best movie ever. Yeah. I just love it so much. Uh, the Dead Zone after this, The Fly, Dead Ringers, Naked Lunch. Uh, we can skip Madam Butterfly. <laughs> eh, I think it's actually aged well. Has it? Yeah, I haven't seen I, it since I, it, it, I didn't out. like it when it came out at the time. I think it's really improved. Uh, you know, it's a complete change in tone for God, him. I wish he would go back to having fun again because it seems like he hasn't been having any fun and making movies for a while you watch everything he's put out recently you're like this is like watching paint dry it's like bleak it, as all hell he's yeah. got very very dour in his old age and uh, yeah but he, i don't think he's he's not interested in, he did the body horror thing for so long that i think he's moved into you know into this more cerebral phase pardon the pun with scanners i did that um <laughs> Hi, Brian. Um, and I really think that, you know, this is kind of the, a, a point where he really finds his voice as the smartest horror guy out there. And I think this is where he really pulls it all together. And, but yeah, I mean, like, like you said, I love the brood. I think this really is the point where he crystallizes who he is as one of the most important filmmakers ever. I even, I like Rabbit a lot too. Rabbit's great. It's and, absolutely um, great, but it's still the one I'm missing. 
Shivers? Shivers, yeah, yep. like that too. Uh, although I never, I've still never seen the the one he did. Uh, was it between this and Video Drum? I want to say, um, or it's around there. There, he did like a racing film. Oh, yeah, that's not horror at all. Always meant to see it, but if there's a Cronenberg film you're missing, you might find it on the set, which is his first feature film, as it were, called Stereo in 1969, which is barely qualifies as a film, <laughs> but it's certainly a it's a nice look at. Who Cronen- what Cronenberg was thinking and what he would become. There's certainly bits and pieces here where you can see how, you know, he made scanners later on amongst a whole bunch of other stuff. The idea being is uh, it stars uh, Ronald Miodzik. I have no idea how to pronounce that, who uh, uh, later appeared in Cronenberg's Crimes of the Future, Shivers and Rabid. Uh, and it's about an hour and two minutes long. So it's not too long. Thank God. Yeah. Because I watched all of it. It's all in black and white. There's no it was recorded with cameras without sound and then had a narration track put on afterwards or multiple narration tracks. And it's done like it's an educational film, like that they're showing you this institute for the study of, it's called the Canadian Academy of Erotic Inquiry. And really what it is, is like they're following around this group of volunteers in there who are apparently have telepathic abilities. And they've found that the only way you can get telepathic abilities is through sex and sex exploration. And wow, so this really is proto-Cronenberg, yeah, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. And uh, they tried them, like hooking them up with different types of sexual relationships to encourage to see what it does to their telepathic abilities. The weirdest thing about this film is often the narration feels like it's not going with what's on the screen at all. Like, what does this scene have to do with what they're saying? It's like doing Korean karaoke, you know? <laughs> I'm singing Guns N' Roses and there's some gangster film on. <laughs> what does that have to do with anything? Um... But, you know, I mean, it's it's interesting for what it is. You can see why nobody wanted to release this separately. Uh, but it makes for one hell of a cool extra on scanners, that's for sure. And it's far from the only thing that makes this worthwhile. There's a brand new documentary film called The Scanner's Way uh, that takes a look with the, the basically the, spe- the whole special effects of the film and how that worked with Cronenberg's directorial uh, methods. It was made this year. Uh, about 23 minutes long. Very, very cool. There's another vi- new video interview with, yay, yay! Michael Ironside, called Mental Saboteur, uh, where he talks about his collaboration with Cronenberg on scanners and uh, the rest of his work. There's the Ephemeral Diaries, uh, which is a video interview with Stephen Lack, who plays the, the protagonist, who is, like I said, somewhat forgettable. But there, there you go, who talks about uh, the character who plays Dick Smith Special Effects, shooting in Montreal. There's a episode, excerpts from a 1981 episode of a Canadian show called The Bob McLean Show, where Cronenberg talks about scanners as well as the films before that. And then, of course, a booklet with an essay by a critic, King, Kim Newman, a really, really, really Excellent Criterion set that I totally loved, and this is my personal pick of the week. Yeah. I'm I'm not surprised. It yeah. is it is a classic. I don't know. I mean, this is such a good week. I think you know I'm I'm still mulling over because this is, this has been. Yeah, what happened? Yeah, after, after some dismal stuff, I'm, I'm yeah, well, like, wow. Well, we had a good week last week. If you true, we did, we did. We had a we had a stellar week last we, week. We really did. Well, let's talk about something not so stellar, which is the horror film. Uh, why do they call it, it's called SX underscore tape instead of just sex tape. I'm unclear on what the reasoning behind that. Because they were terrified that people would be scared off by the possibility that they thought they were going to be seeing what's his face from 
um, How I Met Your Mother with his wangle out again. Well, yeah, they're about to. That's true. There's yeah. a movie called a Sex Tape that's coming out on Friday. Coming out. Uh, uh, and this is you, you stop and think about what you said. I know, <laughs> but this is not that film. This is the 2013 American found footage film. Uh, and a cheap one. Th- uh, yeah. Yeah. Um, no, by, but by no means falling in the worst of the found footage films I've seen. No. Which doesn't necessarily mean it's good either. No. Uh, the idea here uh, like starts with a little film with a detective telling this woman, Jill, played by Caitlin Folly, that her boyfriend uh, is dead and two others are missing, missing, and she freaks out immediately. Then it's like, okay. They're like, he, they're like, we have his videotape. We have a lot of stuff. And like, okay. So now let's, without any fanfare, move directly to let's go to the tape yes mr wheat mr wheat it's a a referencing saturday night live from 100 years ago um so it's jill and adam and she's an artist and he jokes that oh we should do a sex tape and she's and they kind of do but not really and then they're wandering around and it's very boring except that jill's kind of sexy and uh they're like, oh well, I'm not. No, oh yeah, they. He, Adam's like, oh, I found this place called the the, the Vergaris Institute for Troubled Women, which is an abandoned hospital that apparently used to do stuff like you know lobotomies before you were supposed to. They gave abortions when they weren't supposed to, and says, hey, I have a great idea. Why don't we see if we can rent this place out and have a party and show all your very female centric art there? And she's really excited. They get a little too excited and go, you know what? Let's go ahead and sneak in this place and look around. Which they do, and there's everything else in this movie depends on this one scene at the end of the first act, which does not work at all. Where they he ties her down to like a bed with you know restraint straps at her own request, like it's not them, you know, him being a dick. Uh, except he is a dick and goes, okay, I'm going, wouldn't it be funny if I just left you here and came back tomorrow? She's like, that's not funny. That's not funny. He's like, okay, bye. And leaves for presumably 10, 20 minutes. Yeah. It's not really clear. But we see her there struggling and going, oh, you asshole. And the camera kind of fast forwards, which is still sitting there. And then we see this kind of, not even ghostly, but, you know, woman dressed up in a nightgown and looking scraggly like a ghost if they had money for effects, come into the camera and then kind of get on top of her and then go boo into the camera. <laughs> and then, I mean, everything depends on that being scary. Because jump scares are cheap. Everything depends on that being scary. But the problem is that the film never acknowledges that after that that anything happened in that scene. No. The idea being is that, like, Jill has somehow become infected by the spirit, or a spirit, or the spirits left in this place, a very troubled and disturbed woman, as she and eventually two more of their friends come in. Two more, they're very annoying friends. Uh, well, it's a found footage film. You've got to have really terrible. Oh annoying yeah, but people. they're really annoying. <laughs> uh, at, who start going through, just sort of like flipping like through a slide projector of crazy checks. <laughs> and it just, it, which would be fine if the actors I felt were good enough to pull it off, or if there was, you know, motion in the plot happening here at all. I, I, I don't know. I thought maybe that this was all a complex metaphor for how um, uh, LA millennials are such complete, idiotic, self-obsessed assholes that uh, when the um, the ghost apocalypse comes, they're all going to be eaten because every single decision they make is the stupidest one possible. There's like a couple of moments where you're going, oh, no, they're going to do the sensible thing. And they go, no, let's do the dumb thing. And you're like, oh, God, you really had to make this film, didn't you? It's This is every single trope of dull, cheap, found footage just done over again and not done particularly well. Like, there's nothing here that, like, that you're surprised by. There's 
ten minute scenes of like, oh, Jill, Jill, I'm going to walk down this dark corridor with the camera. Oh, it's a bit spooky. Nothing happens. Nothing happens. And this is directed by a very experienced director, Bernard Rose. You would never know. Yeah, he uh, best known for making Candyman. The original one is pretty damn good. Yeah, you know, uh, but has who made Immortal Beloved with Gary Oldman? Uh, worked on uh, the Muppet Show and the Dark Crystal. I mean, this guy's been around Paper for House. a while. Phenomenal, phenomenal film. Paper House, really creepy. Never saw that. High concept horror. Oh no, you, you really need to see that. If you if you love if you dig horror, you need to see Paper House. That is scary, scary. Film. But this is not scary. It's like it's he's, stupid. It's like he's never seen another found footage film yeah. and is doing what seems obvious to do, but that everyone else has already done it. But he's got five dollars to do it with. You know, I don't know what the actual budget here was, but it couldn't. I'm going to go been, with five dollars. It, it couldn't have been much. I mean, the best thing about this film is that I admit makes it watchable for me when you have a cool location yeah. to shoot in, like this, like this giant abandoned industrial building. I can enjoy the film on a certain degree just based on what, you know, the tension that comes from walking around an old building like that. I mean, it's been, this indeed has been done much better multiple times, the best of which is probably Session 9. Yes. Which is a similar beginning, like, idea. I mean, really, even a similar building, except the one they're filming in was actually what they said it is in the movie. Yes. I mean, like, that's one of the coolest things. Right in the beginning, you're like, no, this is really an abandoned institution where they first started performing lobotomies and horrible shit happened in a psychiatric institute that never should have happened. And we're really filming in it. Wow, that's fucking cool. Yeah. This, not so much. The best thing for me about this was Caitlin Foley, who I actually thought was legitimately good. She's not given much to do, but everything that's in the script, she, she does a lot with. Um, and she's who, quite beautiful. Oh, she is. Uh, but, you know, she really goes out there and... and you feel for her character, and she's before, even before she's possessed. You can't. She really, you know, it's this kind of character. There's normally a a background character. It's 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 the annoying slutty friend. And yeah, but you're not really. You know, she makes it actually a fully rounded personality, and I'm surprised by that because you don't get that in this kind of film. Everybody else is a complete moron. They fall apart at the mildest prompting. Um, her her boyfriend makes this decision at one moment where he's like. I can get out of this. And what does he do? He goes straight back into it. And he's like the craziest step. It's so stupid. It's, it really feels like some, like as the director came up to him and went, no, no, you've got to go back in. He's like, but no, <laughs> um, she's bleeding. Our friends are morons. Somebody stole our car. This is the stupid, this is, oh, that bit drove me mad. Uh, spoiler. <laughs> Fuck it. Spoiler on this shit. Somebody steals their car. They call their friends and say, hey, we're in this creepy bit of LA with a whole bunch of gangbangers who were fairly sure stole our car. Could you come and pick us up? And they go, okay. They come and pick them up and go, oh, no, this is a really interesting building. Let's leave our car here. And I'm like, didn't anybody say explain to them the whole the car got stolen thing? Well, it didn't even get stolen. It got towed away. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, like like, just, like we apparently well, it like, just disappears. Yeah, earlier on, there's a cop who chases them in there, and then they get they manage to get away from. Them, but presumably, the cops saw them come out of the car, so had their car towed. It's like you're gonna park a car in the exact same space after that, and then go in there, and especially after they already know. I mean, okay, for Jill, we understand to some degree. We're like, 
like she's already been possessed. She's very confused, doesn't know what's going on and starts, even though she was the one panicking earlier saying, I want to leave. She's the one pushing him. Oh, don't be a pussy. Come on. Let's get back in here. There's a connection where she's kind of flirting with the new guy who showed up, which is driving, you know, Adam crazy. But even so, Adam already knows to some degree something fucked up was going on. It's like, you know what? You guys have fun. Yeah. I'm going gonna, gonna to go home. <laughs> I'll, I'll pick you up later in your own car. Screw yeah, you. Exactly. Yeah. Duh, I, I, like, don't insult the audience's intelligence, particularly this is a director who's made really intelligent movies. It's Candyman is a smart film. Yeah. And that, and that has the same idea of, okay, you're going to go back into something that's extremely dangerous. But it does it well. This does everything dumb. And honestly, if you'd have told me, like, if I hadn't seen his name on the credits, I honestly wouldn't have thought this was an experienced director. This no. felt like somebody who is in their second year at film school and is not going to be graduating with honors. Using effects that you can do on the camera. Yeah. That's the kind of effects level that you're talking Ugh. about. Not post effects. The effects you do by pushing a button on your actual camera to do. You're like, really? That's as far as you're going to take this? Homer, is every show, every, every fade going to be Star White? It's the best one. <laughs> All right, well, let's move on to uh, a film that visually is a lot more impressive than this, and that is the documentary from Canada, Watermark, that came out in 2013. Now, this sounds... All right, so let me just say this. As a documentary with information being given to you, it's not terribly effective, and that's not really the point of Watermark. I mean, ultimately, it's about the history and use of water, which yeah. is about, like, can you imagine someone making that pitch at a studio and they're like, what the fuck does that mean? <laughs> <laughs> the history and use of water? Seriously? Um, what this is is more of a photo journey of, like, you know, just incredible, just startling cinematography of scenes of giant, you know, like, like close up on huge waterfalls and uh, dams and uh, industrial stuff inside the dams moving and like cultures like the everyone going into the Ganges River in India for the the bathing of the sins or whatever they call it. Uh, it's beautiful to watch, no question about it. It just doesn't give you a lot other than that. I mean, there's no narration. There's no dividing point between scenes where you feel like, like, and now here's something going on over here. It just goes from one thing to the next. Uh, and it, it, if anything, it feels more like, God, I don't know, like Kaliana Scotsy without music. Yeah. You know, <laughs> if you will. I mean, it's got music. Well, we, but... we recently reviewed uh, the latest from uh, sure. the... Which uh, you liked, I didn't. Yeah, yeah we, we had a, a parting of the waves, <laughs> uh, shall we say. Hey, there, see, I see what you did there. I did. I, I did that. Um, yeah. So I, I'm getting the feeling this is one of these classic ones where 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 tolerance for this kind of thing may be a huge factor. But I really enjoyed this one. Yeah. And part of that is that you know, like, whereas the visitors, which is the previous one we're talking about, was very just super, super, super focused on not a lot happening. It's just looking for the tiny details. This is like going all around the world and and like showing these and just incredible visual sights, things that, you know, you'd want to go see in person. I mean, it's just beautiful to watch. One of those films you're like, is this really not showing an IMAX anywhere? Because it feels like <laughs> it should be showing an IMAX somewhere. 
there's not much to say about it other than that. I mean, it won the, the Rogers Best, Best Canadian Film Award at the Toronto Film Critics Association Awards. Hey, buddy. Uh, and was named Best Feature Length Documentary at the Canadian Screen Awards. So at least as far as Canada goes, they love the shit out of this thing. But hey. I got to say, it really just, you make sure you go into the bathroom before you watch it, you know, <laughs> <laughs> or, or that you don't, your friends don't mind uh, you pushing pause. But yeah, I mean, a beautiful film, probably a great, I, I kept thinking during this, man, I kind of want to get high. <laughs> it's like a great stoner film. It's so pretty. And you thought that during the Lego movie. Well, I think I was high. So yeah, well, you know. There you go. All right, moving on to another uh, big movie that came out that we're actually a little late with covering, but eh, so sue me. Sorry. Uh, Bad Words, 2013 black comedy directed the directorial debut yeah. from Jason Bateman. Uh, and... Finally, a film with Bateman where he's breaking out from playing that same fucking character he plays in every goddamn movie. The, you know, I mean, ever since Arrested Development, you know, God knows he's not, they're not going, we want you to do more stuff like It's Your Move. No. (laughs) (laughs) Everybody wants him to play this likable but put upon guy that puts up, has to deal with a bigger than life character and he just kind of deals with it. You know, we've seen him play it again and again and again and again and again in every movie that he's in. The only time it's really worked for me in film so so far was uh, Horrible Bosses. Yes. Bad Words is not that Jason Bateman. This is Jason Bateman playing the horrible guy, but that's layered and interesting and realistic. Uh, he's a middle-aged eighth-grade dropout who enters this, a national spelling bee uh, because he finds a loophole that will let him, in fact, do it, despite the fact the National Spelling Bee is nothing but, you know, little kids. Yeah. And, of course, people are furious. It's a major news story. They're all like, this is ridiculous. Why would this grown man do this? And he is just a dick to everyone. And a hell, But the differences between him and, say, the character that Melissa uh, McCarthy was playing in Identity Thief, he's a dick that you actually says things that are funny. <laughs> you know, you're like, this seems very much closer to the mold of something like Bad Teacher. Yes, kind of. Um, and, you know, you know, part of the question is, uh, during this whole thing, why is he doing this? And that is really kind of what they keep you going with. And if anything, this movie is a failing. It's that I feel like when it eventually gets around to that, t- towards the end of the third act, it feels kind of, I don't know if it's anticlimactic, but it just doesn't have quite the same punch that you'd hope it would by that point. But who cares? The main thing about this movie is it's really funny. It's actually pretty goddamn charming. He forms a strange friendship with a young uh, Indian kid that like just absolutely one of those kids that you're like, fuck off. He's like, and how shall I fuck off, sir? <laughs> just like there's you, there's no getting rid of it, you know. <laughs> and eventually, they actually kind of bond, and Bateman's character kind of rediscovers his, you know, the child in him again, and 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 takes his kid out to do stuff that he should not be doing, <laughs> you know, strippers, you, you know, that sort of thing. Yeah, yeah. It ends up being a lot of fun. You got Allison Janey as kind of the villain who's the head of the, the, uh, or one of the heads of the, uh, the spelling bee who's like trying to figure out any nefarious plan she can to get rid of him. <laughs> <laughs> you know, uh, and yeah, Philip Baker Hall plays kind of ultimately the, the guy who, who's wonderful, plays the guy who who's, when isn't he? Well, yeah, exactly. Yeah, I, mean, I mean, redundant statement. I always look forward to him most in, uh, Mammoth films, but you oh. know. <laughs> um, who, he's the guy who runs, who's asks the questions at the spelling, but gives the words, as it were. 
And it, he, uh, Catherine Hahn is a reporter who's trying to get the story of uh, Bateman's character, who is uh, pretty funny. She's a little too broken, maybe. Like, she's trying to compete with Bateman here, who's very broken but realistic. And I think she crosses over into being not really realistically broken, which probably hurts more just because he seems a little more grounded. But ultimately, like, she's broken enough that she realizes what an incredible dick this guy is and yet will fuck him yep. regularly nah. because she feels so terrible about her herself and you feel like why aren't we kind of if that's the case i feel like we should be exploring her story a little bit too yeah and you don't really ever get that but, but then again it, it's it's 90 minutes yeah it's yeah, 90 how minutes cram in. exactly uh this comes with the audio commentary with jason bateman does scene for scene sometimes shot for shot commentary uh a the minds and mouth behind bad words 11 minute look just behind the scenes uh, mainly focusing on Bateman and then seven minutes of deleted scenes some of them extended sequences this is actually a lot of fun and I really recommend that you go out of your way to check it out enjoyed the hell out of this movie uh, let's talk about something I'm curious to know if we're going to differ or not on and there's certainly a lot of different these things happen there's certainly a lot of differing opinions out there about Lars von Trier's latest film Nymphomaniac now first off Nymphomaniac, this all what I guess this version's like four over four hours long. I'm not exactly I, think, sure. I think combined, it's actually a smidge under four hours. Smidge like, because under it's split into two films Nymphomaniac, uh, part one, part, part one, two. which is actually only about an hour fifty, and then part two, which is, is just over two hours. It, it's pretty, yeah, it's like two hours, two, and it comes so, on two separate discs yeah. in this, or you can uh, for. for Reasons that baffle me, they sold them separately as well. I'm uh, like, seriously? Well, there's a lot of people who liked Volume 1 but didn't like Volume 2. You know, Volume 1 doesn't make any sense without Volume 2 in a way. Yeah, true. I mean, I will agree that I find that personally Volume 1 is more... It's more fun to watch than Volume 2. Volume 2 is where Von Trier starts making a Von Trier film and yep. it gets really, really dark. And it's it's kind of an early Von Trier in a lot of ways. Yeah. It's kind of a weird backward step for him. This is the third part of his depression cycle that began with with the phenomenal Antichrist, which to my for my money is still his best film. I I and I think it'd be very hard for him to beat that. Um, and then went to Melancholia, which some people liked. I thought was I liked dumb I liked the uh, uh, second half. Did not like the first half. Uh, I didn't like any of it. I, I I thought it was pretty in places, but I'm like I, I don't really care about any of the characters, and I think it's very mumbly uh, in a very unimpressive way, and it wasted a lot of potential and was too fixated on Charlotte Gainsbourg. Um, this is all about her. This oh, is yeah. a film which is about her, and you better be prepared to to hang on for two for four hours of her doing obscene stuff, yeah, or talking mainly talking about it. Old eraser naps, as we'll call her from now yes. on. Um, Charlotte Gainsbourg plays the main character who, in the beginning, we see she's unconscious and bleeding in an alley on a cold night. And uh, Seligman, played by Stellan, the wonderful Stellan Skarsgård, finds her, like, picks her up. Her name's Joe in the film. And takes her back to his house where he tends to her wounds and starts saying, you know, what's your deal? He's like, oh, you don't want to know. I'm a bad person. It's like, well, I don't think anyone's a bad person. What makes you a bad person? She's like, you got a while. In fact, you've got just under four hours. <laughs> uh, or and, five and a half hours in the original canvas. Right. Uh, which I would admit I would go back and watch. Yeah. I would go back and see. 
I, I actually really enjoyed this film, but in the way you really enjoy a Lars von Trier film, which is to say you're not sure that enjoy is the right word, yes. but you were absolutely fascinated with it. I, a Serbian filmed like, like I, I, this. I have never seen a Serbian film. I you... never will. No oh, interest your, in that. Hey, you want to kill Nymphomania? Show somebody a Serbian film. But, you know, that's the thing. Like, a lot of people are making a big deal out of saying, like, oh, there's nothing erotic in this film. And I'm not sure I agree with that. There yeah. are scenes in here that are, in fact, kind of hot. Like, there's a lot of nudity. And there's trip flashes of triple X all yeah. throughout this. Uh, all of which were fake. Triple X? Yes. Does anybody even say that anymore? Sure. That's a that's a triple X films, yeah. Are you gonna say nudie cutie before the end of the, no, end no, no. Of the show? Look, type XXX into a Google browser and see what pops up. It's True. not Ice Cube. Yeah. <laughs> Just saying. <laughs> um and all those scenes were in fact faked using composites with the actors and porn stars who yep. they would composite their groins over them. Which Which if you're a fan of these things, I'm sure you'll recognize the genitalia. Ah, there's an extra feature on here with Stellan Skarsgård talking. Like, Stellan Skarsgård and the actress, I believe her name was Stacey Martin, who plays the younger version of Charlotte Gainsbourg, who's in, pretty much plays her in the whole volume one, uh, have two very different opinions about the sex thing, where yeah. she's like, you can't, she's talking about, you can't even believe she agreed to do this film. She's like, obviously kind of a prude, and she's like, very like, oh, I couldn't even be on the set when they were doing stuff like that. Oh, it's just horrified by the whole thing. And he's like, I would have done it. <laughs> he's like I don't see we're actors what's the big deal <laughs> he's like Stone Scott's got second career right he's like I don't really see the big deal and it's funny like it never really gets into asking the real question I bet Lars von Trier would have loved to have asked if he had had the balls at this point which are very few things he doesn't have the balls to ask which is like we'll just why don't we just look for different actors yeah you know it's like I'm sorry it's like people do. It's not illegal to do porn. Yeah. Why don't we just find actors who are willing to do it? Watching this, it's very clear that uh, Shia LaBeouf would have done it. Yeah. I mean, apparently he was practically stalking Lars von Trier at this point, which is a pretty Shia LaBeouf thing to do. <laughs> I, th I think it's fascinating that his his character, who is kind of the the main crush of Charlotte Gainsbourg character for much of the duration of the film, um, it, that von Trier takes a five and a half hour cut of his film and seemingly probably increases the density um, of Shia LaBeouf at a point where Shia LaBeouf is basically toxic for being such a complete robbing asshole. Um, and I think that's Von, Tr Von Trio is just poking the audience in the eye, uh, which you don't want to get poked in the eye with much in this film. Um, <laughs> no, I, I, I liked Volume 1 a lot. And I think a lot of that is because uh, you know the the younger actress is phenomenal oh, in, her, in her depiction of the development of this woman who is kind of emotionally cut off and finally becomes physically cut off when she you know and and that's what you know she tries to express herself through you know sexual domination. It's about sex as power uh, and about the meaning of of of. of of power in sexual relationships, dating, and there's, there's all kind of weird references. Like suddenly they'll just go off into a two-minute diversion about a uh, diversion about you know Roman politics. Yeah, uh, because these are two extremely smart people, and the sex will start, and it'll suddenly stop, and it's it's actually funny when that happens. Well, right? yeah, the best parts of this film, in many ways, are the is the conversation, which is what is really happening in the whole film between Skarsgård and uh, Gainsborough, as he is this man who's lived his whole life in books and doesn't have a way to attach himself to what's saying, except for these, like, learned, 
like reactions to things. Oh, this is like in Plato's Republic or what have you, you know. And it is. It's really funny. And it, that, that relationship and the difference between those two where she's he's of the brain and she's of the groin. Yeah. <laughs> like in and of itself starts to plateau into a more interesting conversation as they both become aware of their differences. And I actually think uh, Von Trier, and I've not seen many people discuss this, this is Von Trier doing his own Emmanuel film. Because you go back and look at the Emmanuel films, there's actually very little sex in them. Well, I would even go so far as to say this. I, I kept thinking of the story of O yeah. and stuff like that, except the difference being the story of O is about a woman completely giving herself over to being dominated by somebody else for sexual pleasure. And this is definitely not what's happening here, although yeah. there's certainly aspects of that in volume two uh, when they bring Jamie Bell into it as a, a – uh, a very screwed up, seemingly uh, dominator. What do you call a guy dominatrix? A master. Master puppets yeah, it's, are well, pulling your strings. It's, it's a master. It's a master slave relationship. So he just Fair a master. Who various housewives come in and pay him to abuse them, if you will, uh, quite but, brutally. But I mean, this, 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 this gets graphic. And that's the thing is like the. It's weird when you get to that point of it too, because. Through most of this, she has always been in control. Yeah. Always. I mean, there's no rape scene anywhere in this film. So if you're worried about that kind of thing, this is not about a woman being taken advantage of about by other people. If anything, it's the other way around. Yeah. She kind of just takes what she wants and moves on to the next thing repeatedly. And that's her ultimately that's her fear and what drives her to do things like be dominated and abused by this guy is this i just want to feel something i don't feel anything i don't i'm not even sure i'm a human being i can't feel anything and this fear that she's not good she's not right uh and i think if there's a problem with this it's the last 30 seconds of this film where von trier feels like he has to do something really shocking oh, that is it. like it's totally blows it yeah. with that like what are you kidding me yeah it, it's like he forgot what the last couple of hours of his own film were about it, it, it is a horrible character misstep for uh, which i'm i was actually pretty frustrated by yeah um but i mean this aggravating is a, this is a, a and i think it'd be interesting to see the go back and see the behind our half hour cut because if you've seen the cover you've seen uh so many people doing their o face yeah which very few phenomenal which... Cast, but very few of those people are actually in the in this film for anything other than a spit in a cop yeah I like really, udo I, kier who's in where? it for maybe 45 seconds yeah i was like where is he so i feel there's probably a lot there um yeah i mean this part one i think is is phenomenal and fascinating and, and you know one of von Trier's better works part two become there's he brings this gangster subplot in that i just didn't buy it just felt really With William awkward Defoe. Uncom- well yeah. I, I understand that i understand what he was doing and we're going into part two is going more into familiar lars von trier misanthropic territory certainly uh this woman leading down the road into darkness and I don't think that works as well as he's done it some other times. Yeah. And I still think his best film with that is is probably Dogville, of like this woman who starts off with the best of intentions and eventually ends up being everything she hates. You know, um, this it doesn't part two doesn't quite work, and partially because, like I said, it's it's last beat is so just feels like a cheap shot. Yeah. Uh, which admittedly is Von Trier as well. <laughs> He's always got to have that last, uh, yeah. and, and here it's like, but the, this wasn't that kind of film. Part one works better if anything, because you're still really curious. You're fascinated by Stacey Martin, who's playing a just very interesting and daring actress. Um, 
And uh, God, Christian Slater playing her dad. Oh, who is phenomenal. so likable. Yeah. Christian Slater. Yeah. I, like, I, not real great with the English accent, admittedly. But it's not. Yeah. The the inexplicable idea to, to set this in England, which I'm not quite sure one. I, I think he's making some commentary about, you know, uh, the repressive nature of the British. And this is a, it, it is in large stretches a period piece. Uh, you could tell because it's still got pound notes, uh, which <laughs> we haven't had in the UK in a long time. Huh. So it, it but I mean, Slater is, I think, the best thing about this. Oh, his performance is, is is wonderful and tragic and touching. And I'm really like, I'd like to see a lot more of this this Christian Slater. Yes, not the guy. Yeah, the guy who seemingly got over the need to be to Jack, do Jack Nicholson because yeah. he's he's legitimately like, you know pretty charismatic in this, in a Agreed. film with some really charismatic performances. And I think the point of that whole thing was to not show a woman who's a victim. You know, I mean, you've got to show a woman who grew up in a good family with a lot of love and support who still became this, you know, woman who self-destructed, yeah. you know, completely, completely self-destructed. You know, that that seems to me, I mean, he's even, Von Schur's even said as much that, like, yeah, I wanted to be very clear that this is not a story about, like, someone coming from a broken or abused home or something like that. And that's why she did this. Yeah. Uh, and, and that does help a lot. Uh, Uma Thurman has a wonderful turn in this. She was actually one of my favorite parts of this as uh, Stacey Martin, as, as Joe, is having an affair with a married man. And she's realized she has to break it off because... You know, I don't think it's guilt. It's just there's just too many is what I'm getting. Yeah. Uh, and she's waiting for the next appointment to show up because she has sex with sometimes nine, ten men a day. Uh, and he, she's like, look, we got to break it off. You're married. I thought that maybe, you know, you would break it off as you didn't because she was thinking he never would. And so she's like, OK, well, you can go. Uh, to her horror, he shows up with all his stuff ten minutes later and goes, I did it. I left her. I'm now here to be with you. She's like, oh, fuck. Uh, and then his wife and kids show up, Uma Thurman playing the wife, and are, is just like, oh, I wanted to show you where the whore lives. Come, kid, children, let's look at the whore's bed where your father sleeps I didn't now. even recognize it was Uma Thurman. Yeah. Because uh, she brings none of the, she didn't bring the, kind of that star power to it because she just, she just disappears into that character so completely. Oh, completely. And it is just this, this wounded woman. Trying to maintain a shred of dignity, and she is so good in this. Oh, completely! And I think this is the thing. I mean, Von Trier, when he give when you give people something with him to do, where they're pushed outside of their boundaries, uh, I, I think that he can really you know, just give them a, a performance that, that makes you reconsider who they are as an actor. And he he does that here with her uh, and with Slater, but a lot of other people are like, ah, and Gainsbourg needs to stop working with him because this is. The, the least interesting thing she's, at least interesting performance she's done, and I think if you know, uh, I'm trying to remember her name, Stacey Martin. Yeah, uh, I, uh, yeah, she's the reason part one works so well, and when she's not in part two, and he, there's even like some images that he started reusing from from earlier in the uh, the um, the depression cycle that, that turn back up again. I'm like. Yeah, I think you've really reached the end of what you needed to do with this. And I'm not sure that. Gainsbourg is really being pushed by him anymore, and I'd, I'd like to see him go work with other directors. Yeah, I agree with you. Actually, this does it, it does feel at the same time like the logical end arc for them working together. But I I hope that 
they're both going to go a different way in the future. Uh, there's a certain amount of extra features on here, literal featurettes, uh, one about that are very specific what they're about. One is uh, uh, the characters, which look, talk about the actors, talking specifically about the characters that they play. Um, and then a, a AX, AXS, I'm not sure what that is. Access. Access TV yeah. promo that uh, basically just takes a lot of interview uh, segments. The second part uh, disc is better, where it has uh, they talk. Even though Vontier is never interviewed for this, he's yeah. not in it at all in the extra features. The actors talk about working with uh, with him in the section called the director. And the best part of this whole thing is called the sex, where they all talk about how they did the sex scenes. And like I said, that fascinating conversation on two sides of it of like, ugh, I can't believe actors should be allowed to. Even, we we shouldn't even be have to be around this sort of thing. And the other view of like saying we're fucking actors, we should just fuck. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's kind of fun to watch. So, oh, Mr. Skarsgård, nobody needs to see little Stellan. Yeah, well, we did, so. We did. <laughs> Didn't need to, but we did. Uh, all right, well, let's move on to Deadly Eyes. That's not a song, but it sounds like it should be, right? Deadly Something in the 80s? Eyes. You're thinking of Hungry Eyes. eyes. What or about Betty Davis Eyes? No, 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 that's Betty Davis Eyes. <laughs> <laughs> what is that? Uh, who did that song anyway? Kim Carnes. Oh, okay. What was it? What would you do if I sang you no, a tune? <laughs> would you, you know, in my head, it's always going to be John Belushi. But anyway, that's nothing to do with Deadly Eyes, also called The Rats. Rats and Night Eyes, as yep. it actually says when you start the movie here. It yep. calls itself Night Eyes. 1982 Canadian horror film, uh, very loosely based on a, the horror novel called The Rats. Very loosely based. James Herbert. Yes. No relation to, like, uh, the other Herbert. No relation Dune. to Frank Herbert at all. No, no relation. But who is actually a pretty well-known horror James writer? James Herbert, actually. It's kind, of, it's kind of weird that he's... He kind of go through these phases of falling off the radar, but James Herbert was actually one of the most phenomenally successful... Uh, horror authors in the English language for about four decades. He's, he's sold an endless number of books. Um, uh, several adaptations of his uh, stuff, but none have really been a big hit. I mean, just recently I reviewed The Secret of Crickley Hall, which was a three-part BBC One TV series based on his book that I actually really enjoyed. Uh, Haunted was, was if, if this is the one I'm thinking of, yes, Haunted with uh, Aidan Quinn and a very naked Kate Beckinsale. Uh, Christmas was, was a lot of fun. Anthony a- Andrews, John Gilgood, a fun little ghost movie. Um, Deadly Eyes doesn't seem like it's by the same guy who made ghost movies. This is giant mutated rats killing people en masse, gorily yeah. and horribly in a city. The original story is actually set in London and it's supposed to be kind of, you know, the collapsed post war London that was never really quite cleaned up. Um, and these rats go around eating people. Uh, and actually becomes this, this, it's a trilogy. And by the third book, the rats have taken over. Uh, and humanity is basically scurrying around the ruins of its own civilization. This should have been called Dawn of the Planet of the Rats. Yeah. <laughs> yeah and you ain't going to have an argument with them about, you know, uh, ape should not eat ape. These are rats. Although, actually, as one of the extras proves, they're actually little, little cute wiener dogs in oh, rat suits. They're, they're so adorable. It's, it's, like, all right, so this is relatively low budget, 
and you watch it and there's, I mean, they don't skimp on showing you the rats. No. And the thing is, the very close-ups, it's clear they're animatronic rats that aren't bad. I mean, yeah, they're not the convincing, time, though, good. but they're not bad. But the rest of the time, they're wiener dogs in rat outfits and it's totally clear they're not rats because wiener dogs move like wiener dogs yeah. and rats move like rats and never the twain show me. There is a lovely shot in one of the extras where they actually, uh, it was just a still from the set where they uh, all the wiener dogs had their rat heads off and there's just like these really furry wiener dogs looking really confused but so adorable. I, I was really sad that one of the bonus features, at least that I, I couldn't, I didn't watch them all, but they talk about in the documentary about this, how like watching this uh, pre like uh, post sound fixing was a riot because those rat scenes are all these dogs and you could hear the trainer going come here Trixie come here Muddy and like the dogs going yip 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 and it was just she said it was like everybody would just break up laughing watching it and as far as I could tell that unadulterated footage is not in here it's, which is a shame because I love seeing but this actually this is for a you know something that could have been you know a new version of Attack of the Killer Shrews. I actually, it actually kind of worked for me. This, the idea is that these rats have become, have started growing in the the sewers under Toronto, um, and you know Scatman Crothers turned up, who apparently was extremely high throughout the entire production. Yeah, one of, the, one uh, of the guys interviewed in the documentary is like, one of my main jobs was to make sure Scatman Crothers had enough and a high quality enough of weed yeah. during the production. Um, <laughs> and, you know, basically it's the rat, you know, it's the traditional thing of the rats are scurrying around and picking people off occasionally. And then you have a, you know, a big, how do we kill off the rats thing with some, yeah, it's, I mean, it's, it, there's, there's no plot beat here that you're not really going to see coming apart from some very fascinating interrelationships that, um, you have a, uh, a, a a doctor who a, a, a lecturer um, at a university uh, who bumps into this woman from the local equivalent of the CDC who's uh, who's investigating all this stuff, uh, and they start having a relationship. Uh, but unfortunately, there's this hot cheerleader who's trying to nail him because she likes older men, and it's kind of this weird thing that goes on. And at one point, she, the, the woman just walks off with his son just to prove a point. Yeah, it's a very strange moment in the plot, and you're like, oh, the eighties. The, the they were trying to do a love triangle, I guess, but it's never really because it's not really. I'm never really quite sure what the point of it's was never consummated at all. It seems, if anything, it was like an attempt to do what they did in the eighties with horror, which was to say something. Oh, well, this character is acting immorally, so we have to punish them. No, that was an attempt to put some boobs in it. Yeah, well, even that's, so. That's mainly... There's, and you never really see the cheerleader's boobs, so, yeah. you know, which is you just see the older lady's boobs, which admittedly aren't bad, but still, you know, it kind of defeats the point of that. Then. Yeah. You know, like once again, you're like, okay, so why have the high school cheerleader in here? So we have more characters we know that have face and, and dialogue time that can die horribly. Although uh, the cheerleader actually, uh, you know, if, if for old school horror fans, it's uh, Lisa Langlois, um, who was in a whole bunch of the of really awesome Canadian horror films like uh, Happy Birthday to Me. Um, oh, I love that And one. you also get an appearance by, uh, as her best friend by Leslie Donaldson who, if you're an aficionado, an aficionado of, of films of that era, she was always the best friend in horror films who <laughs> buys it. Had kind of big curly hair. And like always a bridesmaid, broad never a chin. bride. And she's in so many things, and she's so good. And she turns up in this. But, you know, just briefly, and you're like, yay, it's her, I know what kind of film I'm watching. But the, I think why, why this works a lot better than some other films of this period is it's really prepared to go for it. There is a sequence where the rats are surrounding this child, and you're like, oh, no, it'll be fine. It's like, no, 
No, fuck no. And that was like one of the big controversies the f- about the book. Oh, really? Was that okay. that was it, and that sequence is in the book that like the 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 rats are stealing babies and eating them. And it's like it does not back away from that. No, that's the first real death in it. So yeah. it's the first one that get lets you know oh, this is serious. We're not yeah. kidding. It's surprisingly it's surprisingly gruesome. And the director uh, Robert Klaus, who is most famous. Uh, prior to this, uh, so he worked for the Shaw Brothers and, in fact, enter, uh, directed Enter the Dragon. Right. Which explains why Enter the Dragon... Uh, no, it's actually a scene from Game of Death. He also Game directed... Of, well, they're Game watching... A, they're supposed to be watching a, uh, a marathon of Bruce Lee. Yeah, Lee and they go in and it's like a scene of game, from Game of Death uh, on in the cinema. He did Hadley do Enter the Dragon, too. Yeah, he did. Yeah. He's, a, he's a, you know, a legitimately good director. In fact, if you, uh, if you didn't buy Shout Factory's um, nice Lee's box set of, of Bruce Lee films... Uh, I recommend that you do you go back and buy that because there's some great interviews and stuff with Robert Klaus complaining about how the Shaw Brothers fucked him over on the original cut of Game of Death. And it's really interesting to watch. Um, but I think what makes the uh, Deadly Eyes really take off is about it's not really till a little past the halfway point where they go, OK, now hell's he- not just a coming, it's here. Yeah. Where it's. I mean, it becomes fun as, like, the city is thrown into utter chaos and people are dying left and right. And watch these rats, which are, like, about the size of wiener dogs, <laughs> appropriately enough, uh, are, like, just jumping on people's, like, biting their ankles and making them fall and, like, flying through the air and biting people's necks. And it's it's fun in a very midnight movie sort of way, but it's also downright gory as hell at yeah. points and kind of frightening. I mean, if you have any fear of rats at all, this will genuinely, after a while, start to really make your skin crawl, as it should. I, I had a lot more fun. By the end, I realized I had had a lot more fun with this than I thought I was having yeah. initially. So. I, I was, you know, it's aged surprisingly well. And yeah, I mean, the wiener dogs kind of look goofy, but then they're in such big hordes that it kind of make it makes it creepy. And it's it, it, it has the advantage that it's not uh, small. It's not regular rats, and then they just try and pretend that they're super huge. There's right. something creepy and weird going on. And the animatronics actually are pretty impressive. They really work for the time. Yeah, for I, the I time. mean, even the some of the interviews in here and there's quite a bit of extra features in here one of them is with the talks with the the effects guy who was like right out of college you know just barely worked on anything and he had had seen alien and was all like oh my god that's the kind of movie i want to make movies like and like yeah no we just need you to make a bunch of big rats yeah <laughs> and, and they're talking about everything they had to go through on this and and there going, is an interesting connection that he does explain why something this this film explains why something went wrong on alien 3 and if, alien if you four. don't alien uh didn't he say alien 4 i thought he said alien no 4. it was alien 3 because uh, Oh, was it? Okay. Well, they said at one point they were working on a shot with a... Uh, uh, the it? Dog Burster. Yeah, but... Uh, yeah, don't it? spoil it for them, because okay. it's actually worth... what you know, For people who don't normally go through extras, you know, it's actually worth going through that extra just because it's kind, of, it's kind of a funny story about how something famously went wrong on a different film. What's the thing about these Shout Factory extras with these horror films, these little horror films? They managed to get really funny, interesting stories that whether or not you give a shit about the movie make it worth watching just for those, you know. How do they find everybody that they interview? Because I know uh, yeah, Red Shirt Productions did a lot, of this, a lot of stuff for them, but they, I, I think it wasn't Red Shirt who did these, but yeah, they got a, they got a coterie of small um, documentary filmmakers who really put their heart and soul into making these, these extras as good, good as possible. Oh, yeah. That's why we call them the Criterion of Horror. Indeed, we do. Uh, a new and upcoming company in re-releasing stuff is Olive Films. That certainly isn't been isn't trying to be Criterion or Shout Factory, as in their films really don't have any extra features at all. But what they are good at is finding little, largely forgotten but well worth watching films uh, from history and re-releasing them on Blu-ray in a 
decent but not excessive way. So I know this is uh, damning with faint praise, but ultimately, <laughs> his films, nobody else has been re-releasing this stuff. And it's like, oh, I didn't even know that existed. Like the 1949 film Caught that just came out from them, a film noir uh, starring James Mason and Robert Ryan. I mean, huh. like, okay, tell me more. Well, the weirdest I'm thing. I'm Barbara about, Belgatis. And the weirdest thing about yeah. Caught is that it's never really feels like a film noir till towards the very end of it. The idea here is that this young model, Leonora, played by Bel Geddes, uh, she marries this very prickish multimillionaire Smith Ulrich, uh, played by Robert Ryan, who's very, I mean, right in the beginning, he's like, I'm not interested in that bitch. She just wants my money. And then just to piss off his psychologist, who's like calls him on it, is like, you're just, you know, you're a misanthrope and you don't like anyone and you won't do anything unless someone says you won't. Uh, he's like, oh, yeah, I'll show you. I'm going to marry her. I mean, <laughs> very like, wait, really? And you realize this girl, this poor girl is just doomed. Yep. Uh, and she ends up married to him. You go like it's like less than a year later and her life is hell. He just torments her and treats her like hired help and just a horrible guy. So she gets the fuck out, says, I don't care. I was never really in this for the money. I wanted to be comfortable, but not like this. It's not worth it. She goes and works for gets a job at a medical clinic in a really poor neighborhood and, and meets James Mason, who is James Mason. He's just awesome. <laughs> I wish Brian Brushwood was here so he could do a James Mason impression. Man, man crush. Uh, James, come on. He's yeah. amazing. Oh, no, I'm not, I'm not saying anything. I'm saying man crush. Yeah, uh, definitely. Yeah. Um, uh, who's like the nicest guy in the world. And at first they don't get along, but then they end up becoming friends. And then more than that. And things get really complicated when it's clear that She's falling in love with him and he's falling in love with her, but she has, you know, I mean, just on the run from her multimillionaire husband, which, by the way, was this whole film was intended as a direct attack piece on William Randolph Hearst. There was a, <laughs> apparently there was a bit of a tradition of that going on at the time. It did seem a lot of people weren't fond of him. No. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Orson Welles comes to mind. <clears throat> but as she realizes, you know, I'm going to have to ask him for a divorce and you start going... I'm starting to see how this might be turning into a noir film. But even so, it never really does. It doesn't do it all what you expect it to do. I mean, what do you expect them to plot his murder, yeah. right? That's It's not that film. It's not. It's I'm still confused as to why this, other than some lighting choices, is even considered a noir film. Caught is a very strange title, because this is more of a romance film than anything else. Well, its original name was Wild Calendar. Yeah, which is odd. Which is a terrible name. Uh, but there's some <laughs> well, great... You need his kill level. Great <laughs> performances here. Um, look, I thought Robert Ryan is terrific uh, playing the, the... I'm sorry, not William Randolph Hearst. Howard Hughes is who is an attack ah. piece. My mistake. Uh, as this complete narcissist and is like so cold, you just hate him to pieces. Um uh, apparently the director and Preston Sturgis had been fired by Hughes after shooting Vendetta. So they were like both making movies to to attack Howard Hughes at this time. Like, well, fuck him. <laughs> Believe me, if I had become a filmmaker by now, there's a few people in my life that would have been <laughs> the, the villains in movies, that's for sure. A few ex-employers, even. Um, as long as there's nobody with an English accent, or I'd be sad. <laughs> it's the evil, noirish villain, Hollywood.com. <laughs> uh I like this movie. Don't love it. You can see why Olive Films and not Criterion's putting it out. But nonetheless, some fun performances, some fun direction, well worth a look. 
All right, so let us move on. i got to go down the list here and see what we haven't covered. Okay, all down to the wire here, and I know I'm sad that this is another one you didn't get a chance to see, but I do have to talk about Hell on Wheels Season 3, the Western show that has finally started to find its feet and you know, be worthy of really me full-on recommending. Now, the first two seasons of that, while fun... Always felt like they were hampered a bit by unnecessary characters, hampered a bit by relationships that didn't seem terribly convincing. The end of season two killed off a bunch of those characters. <laughs> and in fact, the showrunner left and a brand new showrunner has come on with season three. And boy, can you tell. Because season three is just a lot more fun. It moves a lot faster. It's just better than the first two seasons. And, and the show follows uh, Cullen Bohannon. What a name. <laughs> uh, played by Anson Mount. Which is also a great name. Yeah, also, they just should have called him just Anson Mount. That's pretty awesome in and of itself. But he's like the, in the first season, he's like this badass western type. He used to fight for the South, but the war's over. But now he's looking for revenge to kill all the men who murdered, from the Union side, who had murdered, who were on a murder spree, who murdered and tortured his wife and children. And the last one he was heading for is working at the, the town they call Hell on Wheels, which is this sort of moving town that goes with the building of the Union Pacific Railroad as it goes along, being run by the fantastic Calm Meany, Transporter Chief O'Brien himself, as Thomas, Thomas Doc Durant, based on a real guy, apparently. Um, and he's, you know, he, he's... The, Villainous, but he's one of those villains who'll like do the right thing when it serves his purposes too. He's one of those villains that's not going to go away. Yeah. He's not a seasonal villain. He's there for the long haul. And he and Anson are, Cullen by Hannon are always at loggerheads with each other. By the third season, uh, Durant has been put in prison for embezzling, which he very much has been doing. And Cullen Bohannon has been handed the reins of the whole operation. Like, you're in charge. The problem is, is that Durant still got connections. He manages to find his way out of prison and is trying anything he can to Machiavelli himself back into the operation and screw over Cullen. You're never, you're not really sure what, to what degree he's involved with some of the fucked up shit that happens this season. But that's part of what makes this show fun is yeah. you're never sure how evil he actually is. Uh, one of the high points this season is once again, common, the hip hop star who plays Elam Ferguson, who is a Freeman, uh, who, Cullen Bohannon has sort of taken under his wing is like, I don't see color. You're just the most competent guy here. And I want you as my right hand man. And, they never really trust each other, but at the same time, they're as close to being best friends as anybody is on this show. <laughs> <laughs> you know? uh, it, there's a great moment in this season where uh, they're in the middle of this fight, and Cullen realizes he's probably going di- like, to die, and he's going to die to save his friends, and turns to him and goes, I lied. I didn't free my slaves. And, and, uh, <laughs> and, and Elam goes, yeah, I know. <laughs> I mean, it does seem like, before you're saying, they've made this, the sensible decision of, of ditching the revenge plot to a certain degree, because I, I think that was the big criticism a lot of people had with the first two seasons, was like, you've got this really interesting environment, you don't need to add that in. It just seemed a little bit, you know, prosaic and, and, and predictable. And, and this seems to be like, they go, no, we trust what it is we built a lot. And it comes back to bite him in the ass a bit on this season, as like, one of the things Durant is picking out, like, hey, this guy's a murderer, didn't you guys know? Like, he's a cold-blooded murderer. You know, he killed all these people trying to say, like, he's not appropriate for this. One of the things that bugged me about the season, though, is Christopher Heyerdahl, who is this amazing, amazing, one of, like, my top ten underappreciated actors on television today, who is one of those guys, he's like, he's just, he's a Canadian guy who's been in so, so, so 
many things. <laughs> like, I mean, you've seen him in a ton of TV shows and movies playing various roles. Uh, Sanctuary was one of my favorite roles for him, uh, playing John Druitt and the Bigfoot character on there. Uh, Stargate Atlantis, he played two different characters on there. He's just one of those guys, he's just been in a ridiculous amount of stuff. And here he plays a character named Thor Gunderson, also known as the Swede. Even why why he, would he be called known as the Swede if he's called Thor Gunderson? Well, by any pointing out, I'm not Swedish, I'm Norwegian. <laughs> Um, and he was originally kind of the, the number one hit guy, you know, the enforcer for Durant. But towards the end of last season was left for dead, but is not. And in fact, is hanging out with a Mormon family. The Mormons being a huge part of the season for some reason. Apparently during this period, the Mormons were a fucking bloodthirsty army in oh, this area yeah. of the world. You know? uh, if you actually, uh, there's a great book uh, called uh, Under, the Banner, uh, Under the Banner of Heaven. Uh, about exactly how bad the Mormons were in the in the early. Hey, we're going to move out to Utah because America's not there, and we can do whatever the hell right. we want. And, it's and about, that is phenomenal. It's, stuff. It, you know, this season has them kind of moving into that. You know, the railroads going through that area, and they're like, I don't think so, and they are a giant bag of dicks. You know, and like Christopher Hirsdale in a totally disconnected part of that is sort of hooked up with this family who saved him, and he's helping them, but. You're watching him try to make himself believe he wants to find God, but he's completely batshit insane yeah. in the most frightening way. And that whole sequence is very scary, but he barely gets to interact with anybody else from the show until the very last episode or two. And Aww. I'm like, ah, oh, one of the best things about the show is when you watch Cullen and, and Thor going head to head on stuff. That It's just, you know, Cullen, who's totally sane and incredibly competent and very likable versus Thor, who is, you know got that whole uh, Moriarty-type brilliance, but hampered by uh, bloodthirsty insanity. You know, wonderful stuff. But this is the best season so far of the show. Really enjoyed it. If you haven't picked up Hell on Wheels yet, it really is worth getting into. Like I said, just the fact that uh, for Common alone, who is so good on this show, and like I said, the fact they killed off a lot of the, a lot of the characters I thought were kind of weak, and this actually... Like, so they killed off kills Deadwood. Off, uh, 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 this actually kills off another character this season that I didn't like that much either. I was like, this character is really not doing anything. Oh, there he's dead. Okay, are you the new showrunner? <laughs> Good call. <laughs> uh, anyway, that brings us to our final movie of the week. And Aww. this is our giveaway. <laughs> and this one I'm really excited. Oh, sorry. Are you hey, done? Yeah, you're done. Are you daffy ducking this? I'm, I'm done now. Go on. <laughs> the, where you turn every single color. Uh, <laughs> Get up with not, it. Not daffy duck. What was the uh, what's opera duck? Oh yes. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Pokey pig. Was it Pokey? No, no. Well, that was Bud's no, Bunny. It was, uh... was that Bud's Bunny versus the opera singer guy? Yes. Who was like, like he was just left his hand up and way in the air, Ooh. and the opera guy's turning every color that there is as he's trying to keep the note going. Sorry, that was probably way too much about something you all know. Now I want to go see some water brothers. Uh, I know, right? The Rigor Mortis, which has nothing to do with that, is a tooth is our giveaway, and it's a 2013 Hong Kong horror film, which is one of the first, like, Hong Kong vampire films of the traditional vampire set to come along in years as near as I can tell. I think so. I mean, the, the vampire genre in Hong Kong, which is very different from the American genre, I mean, their vampires are in no way similar, except for the fact they're both undead. Like, there was a, there was a, the Mr. Vampire series, which had, like, an endless amount of, of, like, there was even vampire cops and stuff like that along the way. I mean, the, and, the thing and, was, those were, co there, there was a comedy element. Yeah. 
to those. There was an action comedy element to those, and they're based on the myth, uh, the the ancient legend of the hopping vampire, which is basically yeah. that if people died away from their village, uh, priests could resurrect them and take them back to their their native town to be to be buried. But they, because of the way they were resurrected, they would hop. Which doesn't sound very threatening, and therefore, like you know, when they they actually did the hopping vampire movies, they were kind of goofy. They, they were great. Some, some were, were some were darker than others, yeah. to be sure. But generally speaking, they were horror comedies, including the Sammo Hung uh, series, Encounters of the Spooky Kind, which is also very much the same type of thing, except even goofier. Um, and this is not a comedy. No, this is. A tribute to the Mr. Vampire and Encounter of Spooky Kind films. And even going so far as saying the one character in here who is a vampire hunter, as you will, it shows at one point a picture of his ancestors and it's the cast of Mr. Vampire, like from a production still from the thing with them on set. And you're like going, okay, this is trying to say it's in the same universe as there as those, but this is not that same type and of fact, film. There's, a, a, there's actually a lot of the cast are from, are from the, uh, the Mr. Vampire franchise. Oh, I didn't even realize. Oh, yeah, it's no, the same there's about four or five people in here who basically are playing serious versions of the roles they played for laughs in those films. I mean, this is—it's actually a very knowing film if you know that franchise, and even if you don't, uh, you will get a hell of a lot from this. Yeah, I mean, it's—it's it's got a lot of CG in it, which I which I normally hate, but it's tastefully mixed with a. Uh, uh, What's the word I'm looking for? Uh, practicals. Practicals. Thank you. And it's just, it, it's fun, not in the sense of trying to be funny, but fun in the sense that it's a horror movie that moves very quickly. There's a lot of, like, nasty, bloody stuff and genuinely spooky m- monsters of various types in here. But you saw this more recently than I did. So uh, Well, it's the directorial debut of Juno Mack, uh, who's probably best known, if you know him at all. Uh, for playing the lead in the extremely strange, uh, but I, I quite touching Revenge of Love story. Um, and he brought on, uh, Takashi Shimizu, uh, famous as the godfather of Japanese, of, of J-horror. Uh, you know, Grudge, Ring, this is the guy who was, who was responsible for all that. To kind of fuse the Chinese horror aspects with, with Japanese horror, they keep the J-horror stuff kind of low-key, I think, and that works really well. The basic idea is that this actor who used to do, you know, he did a lot of, of historic uh, films, now he's kind of washed up, he's moved into this apartment complex uh, where everybody there has been there forever and everybody has a slightly sad story. And there's uh, this one guy who runs the hotel, runs the restaurant downstairs, and he serves the same meal to the same people in the same seats every single day. There's something incredibly predictable about what's happening. And then there's a, a Buddhist priest who seems a little bit too interested in the dark arts, but everything seems stable. But there's something weird has been happening there. There's some strange aspects to the block. Uh, and there's some dark stories going on. There's, there's an air of tragedy to it. And finally, uh, we get introduced to the hopping vampires. And it is a genuinely scary take on the hopping vampires, not just because the vampire is actually kind of legitimately terrifying and visually different to anything you've seen, um, but also because there's, there's this sense of tragedy about it. And you, and you kind of like, it, it explains one thing, uh, which is 
if you'd lost a loved one, why would you bring them back as something soulless and demonic and evil? And why would you do bad things to make to allow them to come back? Haven't like you seen that? Pet Cemetery people? It, it, yeah, I mean, it's like it gets around that logic, and it get, it has this sense of tragedy and drama, and everybody here has has lost something. Um, and then you add on to that the fact that it's actually a really good, creepy action horror. Uh, with a phenomenal final fight sequence, which, oh, yeah. which has you know, you know, brings in some really surprisingly gruesome effects, but then goes into this really. I mean, we were talking about films that you know you watch and you're just blown away by the images earlier when we were talking about Watermark. I, you know, the final fight sequence. I was like, this is beautiful. I didn't see this coming in a film like this. This is a, a, a superior example of. of Chinese horror at the moment. We had some releases. Uh, this is a Welgo release. They've done some stuff, put some stuff out recently that we've not been super blown away by. Yeah. I really, really like this a lot. A lot more than I expected because it's character driven. But then also, you know, has this real visual style and visual flair to it. And I think a lot of people who are more familiar with what, you know, J-Har normally does, which in and of itself, we know all those tropes now and are familiar with everything American horror has been doing. You're probably not as familiar with these aspects of Chinese horror, which have not really been explored any time recently in any sort of serious way. And you're going to get something very new and unfamiliar and downright creepy because of that, taking these like parts of the Chinese mythology horror and dealing with them very seriously. That doesn't really resemble anything else out there. No, I mean there are some there's some visuals in here where you look at and go, wow, this this just feels different and alien and uh do you know mac i mean some people have, uh, have disliked this and said this felt felt a little bit over stylized but i liked his eye for this uh you know the the fact that the entirety of the um uh, of the the tablock is kind of drained of color yeah but in a which a lot of people have done but he does it in a very particular way that kind of like the grays become super saturated this is the real sense that the, this place is blocked off from the rest of the world it's where you go to wait for death um and i, I you know i really was would again this is one of these films where i was surprised by how much i liked it because i saw the trailer and I thought, eh, you know, you know, this is going to be a Jap- a Chinese take on J horror, and I it was, I think it was the the only aspect of J horror that that's there is this ability to say no, we have to take this seriously and yeah. not be chintzy. And, and as not a, cut any a fan of that early sillier version of these things, I really enjoyed it on that level as well of just yeah. watching all these things that originally we saw in a goofy way being treated so absolutely serious does it does in fact work yeah. and much credit has to go to the screenwriters and the director for what i thought would be an overly difficult task and making it seem like it wasn't that hard at all no i really yeah this is i mean honestly i think uh you know, you've got your pick of the week um the art house side of me is definitely going with under the skin hmm. the you know likes a good scary romp side of me i think i'm going uh, i've got to go with rigor mortis i you know i really really like this a lot a lot more than i anticipated well that's good Norton. uh yeah i can't speak that's good news. good news good news that's good news for you digital noises out there because we have got a bunch of copies of this on blu-ray to give away to you hey Isn't that exciting and here's how you do it first make sure you're on twitter sorry i know it's annoying but you got to join twitter and you've got to tweet us at one of us net with hashtag rigor mortis giveaway. And what you're going to write is Richard. Ooh, uh, this is one of your jobs. 
I've decided. Oh, it is now. Oh, well, we've had we've had a lot of countries that have have kind of been explored for horror mythology. What country would you like to see more horrors come from, and why? There you go. Yeah, I actually would. This may be useful to the horror uh, filmmakers out there yeah. in the world. You know, let's see some Argentinian horror. Where's that? Yeah, well, I mean, you know, uh, you go back and and uh, look at um, uh, not Big Bad Wolves, uh, the film the guy, the same guys did before, which was the first oh, the ra- Israeli rabies, which films? is the first Israeli horror film. Yeah, it's like uh, or you know, Heart of the Dead, first Cuban horror film. You know, you you got a chance to look at this stuff and say, hey, there's there's areas of the world where uh, you know they've got a great mythology, a great uh, you know a different culture. I'd like to see that, and that's what we want to hear from you. So anyway. there you go, do it. <laughs> oh yeah, that'd be good. Yeah. Anyway, I'd be into it if it was in you. It. I, hey! I see what you did there, and I'm not pleased about it at all. Actually, I don't care. I'm doing my happy dance. <laughs> well, I'm doing my happy dance because this week's episode of Digital Noise has come to a close. Oh, thank you so much for joining us and listening to us. I we are um, well. I'll be at once again at San Diego Comic Con. Please come out and join us Saturday night of a Comic-Con at the Hard Rock Cafe from 6 to 8 o'clock. And I'll be home in my underwear. Yes, you will. But Brian will be there and maybe some other special guests. Please join us out there. Uh, and until next week, uh, no releases too big, no releases too small. From Catastrophes to Criterion, we watch them all. Hey, bye! <laughs> <laughs>